episode 2.7, Securitate and the Employer Intelligence Service. Last time, we saw how the 1970s was a banner decade for Ceausescu. His rule at home was solidified, and his prestige abroad as a diplomat and leader kept growing. But things weren't all rosy. Ceausescu might have seemed like a great guy to many in the outside world, but inside Romania, he used an iron fish to quash any and all dissent, whether real or perceived. This episode, we'll see how the Securitate helped Ceausescu maintain control over Romania's masses. Furthermore, we'll examine how the Foreign Intelligence Service, also known as the DIE, was used to seal secrets, and how it supported rebel groups across the world, including some super famous ones, like the Palestinian Liberation Organization. The Department of State Security, more frequently known as the Securitate, was founded in 1948 with the help of the Soviet NKVD. Never heard of the NKVD? Well, you might know it by its later name, the KGB. The Securitate was originally planned to employ 4,600 agents and staff members, but that number would grow to five times that during Ceausescu's reign. By the height of Ceausescu's time in power in the 1970s, Securitate agents were found in every major factory, hotel, and restaurant in the country. Not only that, but the Securitate ran a veritable army of informants. Although exact numbers are hard to track down, reliable estimates put the number of informants under the Securitate's control at half a million. Romania only had 16 million people at its height, so your neighbor might be an informant or your co-worker, or the taxi driver you took to the restaurant to meet your girlfriend, which almost certainly had a Securitate agent on staff. This would make the Securitate just about the largest security apparatus in the Warsaw Pact. And what was this agency's mission? To protect communism, of course. And how do communists protect communism? That's right, by arresting and murdering a lot of people. By putting so much fear into the populace, that no one would dare challenge the supremacy of Ceausescu and his upper cadre of lackeys. That's how they protected communism. By the late 70s, Ceausescu had ordered the Securitate to be able to monitor the homes and communications of every Romanian citizen, from the lowest ditch digger to the highest party official. They could do this by implementing a mass surveillance program that was aided by the party's absolute control over everything. The Securitate had a small army of people whose jobs were to read people's mail. Any correspondence could be opened and examined for subversive thoughts or activity. Telephones were produced that had wiretaps built into them, and then they became the only telephone that was sanctioned by the party for use in the whole country. Old phones had to be replaced with the new, bugged phones. Now the Securitate could listen in on any and every phone call in the country. Although constant surveillance of a whole country of like 18 million people would have required more manpower than even the Securitate could muster. Interestingly enough, when Ceausescu ordered these bug phones to be mass produced, he got pushed back from, of all places, the chief prosecutor's office. It turns out that according to Romania's constitution, you know the one Ceausescu just got done amending? Well, according to that thing, Romanian citizens were protected from such invasions of privacy. The chief prosecutor brought this simple fact to the Supreme Comrade's attention. Ceausescu, of course, scoffed at this and declared, much like Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, that 
he would make it legal. So much for rule of law in a constitution. Next, the comrade, as Ceausescu was referred to by his closest advisors, demanded that microphones and video surveillance be installed everywhere that subversives might be found. Hotels frequented by foreigners were essentially run by the Securitate. The rooms were bugged, the staff were either paid Securitate officers or were informants, and even the tables in the hotel's restaurants were bugged. They did that little bit by uh, having special ashtrays built with microphones in them. This way, Ceausescu could have his spies in every conversation at every hotel. At least, he could be in every conversation that was important enough to hear. According to one of Ceausescu's former aides who defected to the West, both Ceausescu and Elena listened to the recorded conversations and watched videos of foreign diplomats, business people, and high-ranking Communist Party officials in all kinds of situations. From Western businessmen who took home someone they met on a business trip to Bucharest, and by took home, I mean, you know, to sleep with, um, to Central Committee members having affairs, apparently Ceausescu had a keen interest in viewing or listening to the take on all of them. Elena apparently had a room built behind her office with audio listening equipment just so she could listen at her leisure. And what did she routinely do while listening to these tapes? Well, she poked fun at the people that were being surveyed. Leading lady of the country, and the temperament of a 13-year-old with insecurity issues. Nice. Anyhow, the purpose of these recordings was obviously to score some compromising information on foreigners, to catch spies in the act of spying, or just to have dirt on their highest-ranking party officials and simply because Ceausescu was, in a word, paranoid. He didn't trust even his closest advisors. That being said, though, the comrade couldn't tolerate even the thought of himself being caught on secret microphones. He routinely had his offices and his home swept for bugs, fearing that either the West or the Soviets were constantly eavesdropping on him. When he traveled, he wouldn't stay in a hotel or guest house before it was swept. I don't think it really would have mattered if he would have been caught in Romania because, you know, he owned the country. Who was going to do something about it? Um, but I kind of understand his paranoia about traveling abroad and, you know, having all of his important conversations recorded. Ceausescu's Romania was a country largely cut off from the outside world, though. And although relations were good with many foreign countries thanks to Ceausescu's incessant diplomacy, the average Romanian could only dream of taking a vacation abroad, or even worse, of leaving Romania for good. Contact with foreigners almost universally brought you under suspicion by the Securitate. Securitate officers might even approach you to become an informant and encourage you to continue your contact and essentially spy on your new foreign friends. To do less would be unpatriotic, right? Sometimes you would be given formal training, while in other cases you would just be required to show up at the local Securitate office to give a full report after each interaction. Your reports could then be used against the hated foreigner, and might end up in their expulsion from Romania or their arrest and imprisonment. Hoorah! Ceausescu 
Just as importantly though, the Securitate was equally as harsh on its own people. Like I said before, Securitate informants were in every factory, apartment building, and village. Too much talk against the government, and you might get called in for questioning. Or worse. Since the actual law didn't really matter, charges could be trumped up for just about any reason. Of course, having an actual reason was better and cleaner for the Securitate, but they could make up charges out of whole cloth if need be. In one account I read, a Romanian engineer, Ioan Bogan, and his former pilot friend tried to steal a plane to leave the country in 1961. Aside from the charge of theft of the airplane, they were also charged with attempting to leave Romania illegally. They were sent to jail for 10 years of hard labor, but were released early during a general amnesty from the Gheorghe Dej regime in 1964. Despite being freed, the men were now on the Securitate's radar. They were constantly followed, monitored, and lured into traps. In 1965, Bogan bought a compass, binoculars, some antibiotics and caffeine pills, and some food. He set off to reach Turkey via Bulgaria. You'll remember at this time that Turkey is a NATO member, and just as importantly, it wasn't a communist nation, so if he got to Turkey, he would be a free man. He and his buddy braved a blizzard and had to hide in haystacks, but they made it to the Bulgarian-Turkish border area. One thing to note, Bulgaria's southern border zone was a one kilometer wide no man's land mined, patrolled by dogs, and covered with guard posts. It was forbidden for anyone but the military to be there. Kind of like North Korea's border zones today. Bugin and his friend Petrika made it to within 400 meters of the border before they were stopped by gunfire from a Bulgarian patrol. He got 11 years in jail for fraudulently crossing the border. Five months of his sentence were in solitary confinement, wearing 45 kilograms of chains. That's about 100 pounds of metal latched onto you. He was tortured, fed once every two days, and allowed to bathe only three times during the whole ordeal. But once again, he was let out of prison early after serving just over four years due to changes in the penal code. He tried to assimilate back into Romanian society. He got married and started having kids, and he worked in a shop in eastern Romania. But his wife was denied a job teaching for having married a dissident, so the two worked together selling groceries. But Yuan couldn't just sit by and watch the country go to hell. He and his wife bought two typewriters, but only registered one of them. Oh yeah, you had to register typewriters so that any illegally produced material could be tracked to your specific typewriter. He started producing pamphlets on his unregistered typewriter, talking about how bad things were in Romania and by damning the Communist Party in Ceausescu. In 1983, he drove to Bucharest with placards taped to his car denouncing the comrade. Once again, he was caught and once again, he was sent to prison. But not only he suffered this time, his family was put through pure hell. The Securitate kept keys to Bugon's house and they had a place bugged. They notified Bugon's family to not draw the kitchen curtains just so they could be more easily monitored. Talk about creepy. 
A school friend of Bugon's daughter, Yordana, was tasked with recording her feelings daily, while children and teachers referred to her as the traitor's daughter. In 1985, Bugan was forced to divorce his wife. But on Ceausescu's birthday in January 1988, the Comrade declared a general amnesty, and once again Bugan was allowed to go home. But still, the Securitate tried to trip up the family again. The Bugan family got death threats and calls for women offering Yuan sex. And they still kept the microphones in the house. Bugan and his family escaped from Romania in 1989, just months before Ceausescu's fall. But the fact of all the Securitate surveillance only came to light after Yordana searched the Securitate's archives. So thorough were their transcriptions of the Bugan's household that Yordana was able to relive those memories in vivid detail. The Securitate even noted the sounds of men coming into the house at odd hours, which were Securitate agents sneaking in to change the recording devices. As if that's not bad enough, the Securitate was all about terrorizing non-Romanians too. I knew a Marine security guard who served at the U.S. Embassy in Bucharest in the 1980s. He said the Securitate would sneak into their rooms while the Marines were on duty and do things like lay in their beds just to leave a, a human imprint in the sheets. Now, imagine living with this all the time. This was the depth of their reach. Like, they could even get into some of the most secure places in the whole country if they wanted to. No big deal. But they weren't the only intelligence game in town. The Foreign Intelligence Service, the DIE, rose Romania's spy arm abroad. Thousands of DIE agents were sent all around the world, not only to collect political intelligence, but also to steal technology, to manage influence campaigns, and to perform assassinations. Ceausescu took a keen interest in running his spy network and often got himself personally involved in individual cases of these agents. DIE officers were sent to the U.S. and Canada to infiltrate the Romanian immigrant communities and church circles. These agents wrote pro-regime articles for local and national newspapers all over the Western world. They brought politicians, they coerced Western intelligence officers, and they stole all the technology they could get their hands on. Remember how I said the Romanians signed contracts for the Chernovorda uh, nuclear plant that was supposed to be built by the Canadians? That was only part of the story. DIE officers were sent to Canada during the negotiation period, and they were so successful at stealing Canadian nuclear technology that they had plans for 75% of the reactors designed before ground was even broken. The long-term plan was to cut the Canadians out and build their own nuclear reactors to become a net energy exporter in the future. Western military hardware was, of course, high on Ceausescu's list of wants. Tanks, airplanes, missiles, you name it, he wanted it. According to Pachepa, the dude who defected to the West I was talking about earlier, Ceausescu loved when he was brought a night vision gun scope so that it would make his routine bear hunting that much easier. DIE agents made contact with both the Israelis and the Palestinians and even arranged for Western military hardware to be smuggled all the way from Lebanon to Romania by truck under diplomatic cover. 
According to the information I found, the tank still had a round in the chamber and blood from the poor Israeli soldiers that were inside when it was delivered to Ceausescu. Remember that joint Romanian-Libyan tank that Ceausescu was building for Libya? Well, the Romanians got the tank designs by blackmailing a German who had access to its engines. He smuggled out a working version back to Romania, and the Romanians couldn't help to design and build an engine for themselves like that, so it's a good thing they got this guy. In a different episode, Ceausescu visited Yugoslav dictator Josip Tito on Tito's private yacht. Tito laid out a plan to assassinate some Yugoslav dissidents by convincing them to go to Bucharest, where one of the dissidents had a brother in exile. Ceausescu agreed, and once the men were all in Bucharest, they were arrested, and one beaten so badly that he died right there in the hotel room. The other two were quietly whisked away to Yugoslavia, where they weren't heard from again. As a reward for his assistance, Tito agreed on a joint aircraft project with Ceausescu. And how do we know all this bad stuff about the DIE? General Ian Pachepa was the head of the DIE and a close advisor to Ceausescu himself. Pachepa got fed up with everything in Romania, though, and he defected from Romania in 1978 after Ceausescu sent him on a mission to personally assassinate a Romanian expat in West Germany. Pachepa was the highest-ranking member of a Warsaw Pact country to defect during the whole Cold War. He was essentially on speed dial with Ceausescu for years, and was often called in for consultations with the comrade at all times of the day. He accompanied Ceausescu and Elena on foreign trips, and provided them with intelligence reports almost daily. A few years after his defection, Pachepa wrote an account of the last months of his employment under Ceausescu. In it, Pachepa describes all kinds of DIE operations that were ongoing at the time. In the last story for today's episode, Pachepa lays out Ceausescu's negotiations with Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. Secretly flown to Romania, Arafat was wined and dined by Ceausescu, who was trying to have Arab-Israeli peace talks held in Romania. After their meeting, Pachepa claimed that Arafat went back to his room and started having sex with one of his male bodyguards. This bombshell allegation has been repeated by several Israeli sources, and there are even claims that Arafat's doctor believed he died from AIDS in 2004. But most of these sources just repeat Pachepa's claim, and almost all the news outlets carrying it are Israeli-owned or pro-Zionist, which obviously means they have their own motivations for publishing such a damning story. Take it for what you will, but this is just one person saying that Arafat, uh, kind of like the boys. Pachepa's defection and subsequent debriefing led to the wholesale dismantling of almost every Romanian intelligence operation on foreign soil. By the mid-80s, dozens of Romanian agents had either been arrested, deported, or declared persona non grata. Romania's ability to abscond with foreign technology was essentially destroyed. And with the economic meltdown that started in the early 80s, Romania would never recover or rebuild this foreign intelligence capability. Needless to say, Ceausescu's domestic and foreign intelligence services were brutal, oppressive, and ruthless. They would suppress any and all dissent internally, 
and were probably the most successful at stealing Western technology out of all the Warsaw Pact countries. In our next episode, we get to see how the Roaring 70s turned into a miserable 1980s. The economic engine Ceausescu had built started to slow down and essentially collapsed, leading to shortages heretofore unseen in communist Romania. Thank you.